0: From CPR News in Grand Junction, this is Colorado Matters. The Democrat running against Congresswoman Lauren Boebert is only recently a Democrat. Today, a discussion of style and substance with former Aspen City Councilman Adam Frisch. On substance, we'll talk water, abortion, and his reservations around forgiving student loan
1: debt. And we can get into conversations about medical debt or housing debt with increases in mortgages. And I'm just saying, I think I want to be laser-focused on those that are truly most in need.
0: As for style, Frisch wants to put a stop to what he calls anger-tainment.
1: There's an option between sticking the course of loud and obnoxious and mean and petty, and not focus on the district, and a breath of fresh air who's gonna treat everyone with respect, whether they voted for me or not.
0: Plus, a day in court for Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters
2: Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give
3: monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado.
2: Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner in Grand Junction. I'm also in the 3rd Congressional District, which is about as red as the Mesa's. It hasn't sent a Democrat to Washington since 2008. Adam Frisch wants to change that, but it would mean unseating incumbent Lauren Boebert, one of the GOP's rising stars. Frisch knows that won't be easy, but he does see a path to the U.S. House. I spoke with the businessman and former Aspen City Councilman Tuesday. Adam, thank you for being with us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: What's an important way you would change how CD3 is represented? Um, Maybe an example in style and then when it comes to a specific issue.
1: Without a doubt, style and issues are it. Right now, I don't think the district's being represented. That's the main reason I'm running. I think that our current representative is part of the leader of this angertainment industry that our current representative and her best friend Marjorie Taylor Greene are running around the country, yelling and screaming and firing a lot of people up about issues that have nothing to do with what I know that the men and women and children and families and businesses are focused on in Western and Southern Colorado. And so I've been a bipartisan consensus building, successful business person. I've done the same thing in the nonprofit world, the same thing when I was doing what I call elected community service, when I was a city council person for eight years. And it's about building coalitions and focusing on the job and passing legislation and discussing things in a thoughtful and calm manner. And that's something that I believe 80% of the people want to have happen in the United States. And I think that's 80% of what's trying to be done by the members of the Congress. And unfortunately, those people are not the ones on television all the time. They're not the ones that are kind of glued to their Twitter feed ranting and raving about different things. I think people just want to take a deep breath and not have to think about the representative like they had to think about the former president a lot.
0: So that's an example of how you would change the style, the the end of what you call anger-tainment. Uh, And yet, uh, Lauren Boebert uh, was elected in the first place and also won her primary. And so unaffiliated and Republican voters chose her over an alternative. What is an example of an issue that you think she is not um, paying attention to that affects those in the third CD?
1: I think those issues have to do with inflation and economic challenges we have ahead. They have to do with water. I think they have to do with the rural aspects of healthcare. They have to do with the rural aspects of education to make sure that there's the right amount of funding so it's not just the wealthy big cities or the wealthy resort communities that are being looked after when it comes to education especially. And I think those are the issues that I don't see her focused on at all. Um, In the primary, I think it's a huge sign of weakness when any incumbent cannot even get two-thirds of their own party to vote for them. And she had 36% of the people in her own primary vote against her, and our plan is to build a bipartisan pro-normal coalition, and we'll need about a third or fourth of those that voted against her in the primary, and that's the coalition that we're going to use to see her defeated.
0: Did you use the term pro-normal?
1: Yeah, I am building a bipartisan pro-normal party coalition.
0: There's a lot there that I'd like to unpack. Um, Sure. Why don't we start with inflation? Do you think democratic policies and the amount of federal spending, relief spending, is a contributor to inflation?
1: Yeah. So, and I've I've said this as a citizen and I've said it as a primary candidate and I say it now. The Fed was very late to realizing that the inflation numbers that were coming out were not just transitory, which as fed speak for temporary and i've said it before i think president biden and his economic team were also late to the party and realizing that this was going to be not a temporary move up in inflation i am very supportive of the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the bipartisan first COVID bill that came both of those came from the problem solvers caucus which is made up of 29 Dems and 29 Republicans in the House. And it's been my stated goal uh, from day one to join that. So I know Joe Manchin has frustrated a lot of people, but I'm glad that he stepped in and put some breaks on some of the later proposed infrastructure bills, because I think that spending would have been unnecessary. And it's hurting the exact people that I think a lot of people are trying to focus on.
0: I wonder, to some extent, if you have to run against Democrats to win this district. Uh, you often use the term conservative to describe yourself, uh, seeming to eschew the label Democrat. Is that to increase your odds of winning?
1: No, I mean, it, it's, it, it's, an, it's to increase the ability for people to understand who I am and where I'm coming from. And Ryan, what I've believed as a citizen, and I was an unaffiliated voter for 36 years, and I joined the Democratic Party officially, At the end end of December to make sure that I had the possibility of running against Lauren Bobart in the general election, I made it very, very, very clear in the entire process of the primary that I was a pro-business, pro-energy, moderate, pragmatic Democrat.
0: You talk about energy. So that is to say you would rather see drilling here than abroad. Do you want to see a day when there is not drilling?
1: No, of course. I mean, listen, I think the goal is that there is renewable energy produced locally across the world so there's no such thing as a transmission line or transition pipeline of of anything but the reality is and i'm stuck understanding math fairly well is that there's a certain amount of demand that i wish we'd spent more time focusing on reducing that demand but when we reduce energy being produced in colorado on the western slope especially or in the United States, we're not getting solar power from Denmark. We're getting pretty much the exact same type of energy from countries that I don't think are helpful for us, I don't think they're helpful for the world. I think that employment laws and the energy regulations that we have in Colorado, let alone the United States, are much better for the climate and for the global workforce than they are coming from Iran or Venezuela or Russia.
0: Let's get to another issue. You call President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan reckless, saying it is executive overreach. And, quote, rather than forgiving loans for top income earners, we need to level the playing field. Um, but, Adam Frisch, there there is an income cap on this. So help me understand your thoughts here.
1: Yeah, so uh, a couple things. I am a big believer in education to the point of when COVID started, I went and obtained my substitute teaching license. Uh, and spend a couple days a week with pre-K four, because I believe as well as my wife, Katie, who's now the president of our local school board, that kids need to be in school pretty much at all costs. And sadly, that report that came out nationwide two weeks ago showed like a 40 year low in what we've lost at the elementary and, and the high school testing scores. As it goes to college, without a doubt, college is important. It's not the only path forward. You know, there's Votech and there's apprenticeships and there's community colleges. And so there's a couple of things. One is a half a trillion dollars. That power should not be given to any president. You've seen this happen over and over again when presidents get frustrated with the congressional path and they decide to pull out a pen and call it an executive order. So it's going to be interesting and I hope it's not a huge letdown, but we could see the courts stop exactly what Nancy Pelosi said was probably not legal to do that. That's one path Two. I realize there's a focus on those that are making less than 100000 or $80,000, but still there's a lot of money that is going to be going to those that are making over eighty or $90,000 a year. Um, and
0: you think that's too high?
1: I, I do think it's too high. I think there's a couple of things people need to realize. Only one-third of adults in the country have a four-year BA degree or above, and especially Democrats are many times shocked to hear that it's that low. And so I I realize that college is a great path for many, but it's not the only path to have a successful life, monetarily, non-monetary. That's one thing I want to say. Two, there is an income cap up to $250,000. And and I've been getting some pushback from some people. And I'm telling people, if you think $200,000 is quote unquote, not that much money, this is exactly why the Democratic Party has lost a good chunk of the working class and a good chunk of rural America over the past 30 years. If we're going to really focus on what I think we should be on in CD3, what I'm focused on are those that are truly middle class uh, and below. And that's where we get into conversations. And we can get into conversations about medical debt or housing debt with increases in mortgages. And I'm just saying, I think I want to be laser focused on those that are truly most in need. I think we should have tried to go through the congressional path because that's the constitutional way to do it, number one. Two, I would have rather seen a much lower cap that is truly trying to go after those that are truly most in need at the Pell Grant level, and I think we should have focused on that.
0: Who are you endorsing in the U.S. Senate race between incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett and Republican Joe O'Day?
1: Michael Bennett, for sure, without a doubt. I respect that, unlike Arizona... The Republican Party on Colorado has put up some more, what I'll call, from the normal wing. But listen, I am a Democrat. I am supporting Michael Bennett. I think he's done a great job uh, for the entire state. And uh, that's what I'll be supporting without a doubt.
0: Should Congress move to protect abortion federally? Or should it remain a state-by-state issue, as is the immediate outcome of the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Dobbs?
1: No, I, I wish Roe v. Wade would have stayed uh, for all sorts of reasons. And I, I think more and more Republicans are realizing they wish it had stayed too. Look what happened in Kansas, which sends up a lot of the same demographics that CD3 is. There was an expected hopeful win of two or three points by the pro-freedom group that was trying to protect women's health care decisions, uh, and they ended up winning by 19 points. And all of a sudden, you're seeing Republican candidates uh, literally take their abortion thoughts and feelings off their websites, just like they are taking their support for Donald Trump off the websites, what's happened down in Florida of late. And so I would much rather see that there was a national level protection and left it at the Roe v. Wade conversation.
0: CD3 is Colorado's largest district geographically, encompassing the southern portion of the Plains and Pueblo and Durango and Grand Junction, how much is the map a challenge as you shake hands or bump elbows?
1: Yeah, it's a challenge when you ha- when your district's larger than the state of Mississippi on a square mile basis, and it takes eight hours to drive uh, from one part of it to the other. But it's a beautiful challenge, and it's invigorating because you have a chance to meet so many different people from all over in different aspects, whether it's Ag or the ranching or the people that are on the energy producing side, whether it's the renewable solar world that's going on and increasing or it's the on the coal and, and gas side. I think it's, you know, then we have our mountain towns as well. And those that are really happy to live in the most rural parts of the country, it's all great. And, you know, I love meeting people and hearing their stories and having a chance for them to learn a little bit about me and understanding. I have a lot more in my background than just being from a mountain town over the past 20 years. And so i think it's great but it is it's a lot of miles on the road and we're cruising around in our pickup truck and we're pulling our beat bobard buggy which is a converted 19-foot family camper trailer that we've had for about 15 years and we're driving around the district a lot of it with my son who's taken a year off of high school to uh, work on the campaign and it's been really fun driving around uh, and getting the chance to see even every nook and cranny we've been in Nukla, we've been in Dunn creek and it's been great
0: A quarter of this district identifies as Hispanic. That is a broad and diverse community in and of itself. But how are you hearing from that community? And what are you hearing?
1: Yeah. And, you know, Pueblo is the largest city in our district, and it's about 50% Latino. And it's interesting. You know, when I first started this, I got a hold of the Colorado Latino policy agenda that was a big study that was done recently. And you see that the Hispanic community on the whole has the same concerns as the Anglo community as the same thing as Republicans and Democrats and old and young, which is people want to make sure that they they live in a safe community. They want to make sure that they have economic opportunity and economic stability. They want to make sure their kids are going to a good school and a safe school, and and they care about the conservation of our public lands. And so the great thing is, is that while a lot of people try to dissect all these little subgroups and sub-subgroups, the vast majority of people, Uh, are focused on pretty much the same things of what they want done. And the reason I'm running is I think the vast majority of those people don't feel that they're being supported by their current representative.
0: Earlier in the conversation, you invoked water. A lot of the eastern slope gets water from the western slope. And it's a fascinating thing that your district includes both sides of the hill, as it were. What conversations are you having about water especially given that the federal government is stepping in because of scarcity on the Colorado River.
1: No, exactly. And it's not just the eastern slope that gets water from the western slope. It's California. It's New Mexico. It's some parts of the Republic of Mexico. It's Las Vegas. It's Arizona. You know, we have this compact that was started, as you know, in 1922. um, And it was sadly kind of set with bad luck at some really high water levels. And we're locked into those from the Colorado And I think what we've heard over the past month or two from the Bureau of Reclamation, which is in charge at a Washington DC level of trying to figure out how to divvy up uh, the water on the Western part of the United States. Uh, And what I've heard, and a lot of other people have heard so far has been, can you people get together, play nicely, let's try to figure out a way to divvy up the water allocation and we'll let you do it by yourselves. And hopefully that will, be enough to stimulate that conversation. Unsurprisingly, there's not a lot of movement on that. I do think slash fear, let me see later on in the year, early next year, after the general election midterms are over, I have a feeling the Bureau of Reclamation might be coming down and pulling out maybe a velvet hammer at first and really start to have these conversations about mandating cuts or mandating usage and conservation and everything else like that so i think we are in for some frustrating and frisky conversations and negotiations with these eight states and i'm making the case who do you want in those rooms negotiating i think it's important that colorado sends its best people that they think can negotiate and again i don't think there's anything to do with partisanship it all has to do with who has a track record of negotiating and who who's going to focus on it and who's going to do a good job. And, and the concern is to make sure that the agricultural community and the ranching community and the recreation community and the conservation community make sure that enough water stays in the western and southern part of Colorado to make sure that we have a thriving economy and a thriving climate and a thriving ecosystem.
0: I keep hearing you say that you're the right person to broker deals to arrive at compromise. Uh, What is an example of you doing that, either in business or when you uh, were on the Aspen City Council?
1: Well, I had a 10-year track record of traveling the world. I've been to about 40 or 50 countries for work, and I did business in another 40 or 50 on the phone. And talk about multiculturalism and a crash course in that and having some success in that. So my entire 10-year time in new york city was was negotiating and doing deals that provided a win-win and doing them in a respectful manner and it might seem hokey in this day and age but being able to compromise and listen to the other side and not make fun of everyone else that doesn't agree with you 100% is a i think a time-tested skill set and one of the reasons we're seeing a breakdown not from everybody but for some par- from some groups of both parties in DC is about why we're stalling in some legislation that I think is important. Two, um, on my city council stuff, you know, spending eight years, I have a lot of good conversations with people at the city council levels. I'm traveling the district and, and the same at the county commissioner, regardless of, of political party. And that had to do, I, I spent most of my time on city council work on affordable housing uh, and making sure that there was a good balance between the money that was gonna come in, the land use policies that need to possibly change or happen to see that more density was gonna happen in some communities. And I, I think those density conversations are best left at the local level. But I do believe that you know all the really hard stuff we have left is gonna require us to ne- have people negotiating in good faith. And I know that 80% of the people on both sides of the aisle in DC do wanna get back to negotiating on good faith. It's just those loudest ones that are always screaming and yelling, part of that angertainment industry that I talk about is, is not being helpful.
0: How high a bar is it? How difficult a hurdle is it for you to win in this district where Republicans and unaffiliateds outnumber registered Democrats?
1: It's uphill. I studied the numbers, and what I looked in 2020 was if I look at these seven or eight extremists on the right, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar and Jim Jordan and Matt Gaetz, they all had 65% to 75% wins in 2020 Lauren Bogart only won 51% of the vote in 2020, and she did not even win her home county, which is very rare. Those that know her don't care for her and a lot more people know her now and not for the reason. The district has gone even more red. I think we need about 10% of her prior voters to switch. And the fact that more than a third of them just voted against her gives me the plan to victory. And I what I wrote down in October for myself. Is what I've shared in the primary and what I'm sharing now is we need about 10% of our prior voters to switch to go into the traditional group of people that are going to be voting uh, for the D ticket. And again, it's a bipartisan pro normal party coalition that I'm working on. I don't care how people voted in 2016. I don't care how they voted in 2018. I don't care how they voted in 2020. I'm just focused on letting people know that in 2022. There's one question on that ballot which is who is the best person to represent you and your family and your business and your kids and your community uh, for CD3. And I'm making that that's my case. And so while I appreciate that in today's world, and it's pretty sad that loud must mean strong, and that is the case for a lot of people. In this situation, I think Lauren Boebert is uniquely loud and weak. I know that there is a tremendous amount of buyer's remorse when people voted for her in 2020. And again however they voted in 2020 was up to them for whatever reasons i'm just making a clear case that there's an option between sticking the course of loud and obnoxious and mean and petty and not focus on the district and a breath of fresh air who's going to treat everyone with respect whether they voted for me or not i look to do constituent services at a very high level Uh, And we're not going to have an enemies list that you hear about in some of these other offices about who you're going to take care of once you get an office.
0: Adam, according to the Denver Post, you were in the World Trade Center's North Tower during the 1993 terrorist bombing. Uh, The paper also reported you were in Boston when the marathon bombing occurred. And you were still working in New York, not far from the Twin Towers, when 9-11 happened. How did those incidents inform who you are and your desire to serve in Congress?
1: You know, there's a couple of things. One that just sent me back out to Colorado. I spent four years in Boulder going to school there, getting my economics degree. And I knew at some point I wanted to go back. But after living through the horrors of 9 11, and I stayed in the city for a couple extra months, I decided it was time to kind of pause and reflect and, and look back west and see if I could come back and and kind of do the next stage of my life out in in Colorado. And it certainly taught me about the fleetingly of of life because I went through a lot of funerals post 9-11, which was really tragic for myself and a lot of other people. You know, I've always been kind of doing this public service and standing up in leadership roles through high school and college. And I thought it'd be really important to do service when I got to my community. Um, And now I'm just kind of expanding my community beyond my county into this district and i think it's important to understand the gravity of the decisions that get made in washington dc domestically and internationally it reminded me that it's important when america is active beyond its borders and as far as having good strong allies uh, the the world is usually a safer place and when the united states retracts globally other people fill that gap of leadership and they're not always the best countries that are doing that And so while my focus is going to be on natural resources and water, when I get to Congress from a committee work standpoint, I do have a little bit of a background and a wider lens to make sure that international relations are good for the country. It'll be great. You know, Colorado's biggest export remains beef, and we sell a lot of beef as a state outside the 50 states. And I think those are the type of relationships that are important economically, as well as for national security, which I'm a a big proponent of.
0: Thank you for being with us.
1: Thank you, Ryan, for your time.
0: Businessman and former Aspen City Councilman, Adam Frisch. He's the Democrat hoping to oust Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert here in the 3rd Congressional District. Boebert declined our request for an interview, but our invitation remains open. In Grand Junction, our studio is downtown on Main Street. And last night before I hit the hay, I went for a stroll. And that's when I heard it.
1: And your shoes get so hot.
0: Sound pouring from not a barber shop, but a realty office.
4: Under the boardwalk, down
1: by the sea. My baby is where I'll
0: be. Canyon Grand, a barbershop quartet, was rehearsing ahead of a show this weekend. The bass, Dave Woodward, is a real estate broker, so they can use this space with its resonant tile floor to practice. They handed me a business card with their motto, providing quality four-part harmony in a cappella style for all your special events. This may not be the first time you've heard of Canyon Grand. In 2019, our Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg, featured them in a story about singing telegrams at Valentine's Day. Canyon Grand performs Saturday at Cavalcade Fruta, a volunteer-run nonprofit profit arts center. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When the world changes, come to CPR News for updates on what's happening. We'll keep you connected each and every day. Just tap on your phone to listen with the Colorado Public Radio app or come to
2: CPR.org.
0: You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters was in court yesterday. She entered a not guilty plea to charges around the security breach of her office's election equipment. Colorado Matters producer Carla Jimenez was in that Grand Junction courtroom. Hi Carla. Hi Ryan. We're also joined from Denver by Public Affairs Reporter Benta Berkland, who has covered the Peters story for more than a year now. Hi Benta. Hi. Carla, what was it like at the courthouse on Wednesday?
2: It was a short hearing, but it still drew a really big crowd. About 50 of her supporters showed up, and they started gathering early, about half an hour before the arraignment began. One was wearing a T-shirt that said on the back, I stand with Tina Peters. Another was holding a sign, and when she walked into the courtroom, they all started applauding. Uh, After the proceedings were over... Peter's supporters followed her out of the courtroom, and she stopped to shake hands and greet all of them, and they followed her all the way out of the courthouse and didn't disperse until she left.
0: What was the substance of the hearing itself?
2: It was very procedural. Uh, the judge read the charges against her and asked how she pleaded, and she said not guilty. And then after that, he set a trial date for next March. And then the jets, and then the judge set some dates before then for pre-trial conferences. Uh-huh. And it lasted about 15 minutes total.
0: What was the mood inside the courtroom?
2: I'd say it was a little combative. Uh, court officials warned the crowd that no recording or pictures were allowed inside the courtroom. And the man sitting next to me in the audience said, kind of sarcastically, of course, they wouldn't want the truth to get out. At another point, a Mesa County sheriff's deputy asked a man in the back to take off his hat. And again, the man sitting next to me challenged that rule, pointing out that women were apparently allowed to keep their hats. And after that, the sheriff's deputy threatened to throw my neighbor out. Um, Overall, there just seemed to be a really deep skepticism from everyone who was there on Peter's side.
0: Did you talk to any of the supporters who showed up?
2: I did. After the hearing, I talked to Merlin Zimmett from Grand Junction. He said he had not made up his mind about Peter's innocence, but he was there to support her.
5: I just happen to know Tina personally, and she's come under a lot of fire from multiple sources. And it's a tough beatdown for somebody that has to go through this type of court procedure. It's very mentally training. Emotional support, I think, is important. Whether Tina is guilty or not, I'm not here to say because I don't know all of the facts, but I'd like to know. I'm interested to find out how this court case goes, and I'm hoping that justice prevails one way or the other.
2: He said he has firsthand experience with the justice system in Mesa County, so he knows what it feels like to be, quote, under the gun. Ben to
0: Birkeland, uh, this case has received a lot of attention, both locally and nationally. What are the main charges against Tina Peters?
4: Peters was indicted by a grand jury and faces 10 counts in all. Seven felony charges, including attempting to influence a public servant, identity theft, criminal impersonation. She also faces three misdemeanors, and there's an ongoing federal investigation. And all of this stems from what prosecutors say was a scheme to sneak an unauthorized person into her office to copy the hard drives of election machines and to allow this person to attend a secure software update.
0: As we heard from Carla, Peters has pleaded not guilty. What, what is her defense?
4: Basically, she says everything she did was within her legal authority. Peters says she was simply trying to investigate concerns she and many of her constituents have about the county's voting machines. Mesa County's election equipment is made by Dominion Voting Systems, and this is the company based in Denver that has become a target of conspiracy theories after the 2020 election. Dominion is actually suing a number of prominent Trump supporters and the Trump campaign for defamation. During her run for Secretary of State earlier this year, Peters talked a lot about the charges against her. But I think a lot of attention, a lot of light has been shown on me
2: to demonize me for what I did, which was preserve election records, uh, which is my job.
4: Peters lost that GOP primary for Secretary of State to Pam Anderson, and Anderson is a former clerk who has strongly defended the integrity of Colorado's elections.
0: Tina Peters, as folks may recall, did not accept the results of that primary election either.
4: That's right. Her campaign paid for a recount of the GOP primary results. That recount did not change the outcome at all. Peters then filed a suit objecting to how the recount was conducted. But a judge dismissed that complaint Tuesday.
0: One final note, as Tina Peters mounts her defense in this election security case, her deputy clerk may testify against her, Bento?
4: That's right. Belinda Nisley agreed to assist prosecutors, and she pled guilty to three misdemeanor charges. So this was in return for prosecutors dropping more significant charges against her. Nisley described her actions related to the security breach as all directed by somebody else her boss at the time. That was Tina Peters. But the judge chastised Nisley for blaming Peters for her own actions. Instead of taking full responsibility, the judge called the facts troubling and alarming and said Nisley's crimes are worthy of incarceration.
0: Benta, Carla, thank you so much for these updates in Mesa County and uh, Benta there in Denver.
4: Anytime. Thanks, Ryan.
0: CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Birkeland and Colorado Matters producer Carla Jimenez talking about the latest in the Tina Peters election security case. Psychedelic mushrooms would be legal in Colorado if a ballot measure passes this fall. We'd be just the second state to take this step. A mother here in Grand Junction is among the voters with big concerns. CPR's Max Lubers reports.
6: If the Natural Medicine Health Act passes, Coloradans over 21 could go to state-regulated spaces to take psilocybin mushrooms under the guidance of a trained facilitator. Or they could grow and use their own. Some studies have suggested psilocybin could help with depression and anxiety. So initiative organizer Kevin Matthews says people deserve access to psychedelic mushrooms.
7: Why not have another option, especially considering that, you know, in many cases, traditional interventions just simply aren't working and and in some cases end up causing more harm than good.
6: And Matthews thinks that under this law, mushroom use would be safer. He recognizes that people can have negative experiences with psilocybin, But he says the best way to avoid that is through guardrails and education. Opponents of the measure, though, believe it's too dangerous to legalize. My gut reaction was actually hell no and a few other cuss words. That's Sharon Annable of Grand Junction. In 2017, she woke up to news about a shooting on her daughter's street. She texted to check in, but received no reply. Then she heard a knock at her door. It was the local coroner. And when he showed up,
3: I knew it was my daughter. I said to him, it's Heather, isn't it?
4: And he just nodded his head.
6: Heather, Annabelle, and her boyfriend, Alexander Kolpakov, had taken psychedelic mushrooms the night before, according to a witness on a video call with them. Not long after, a neighbor found Kolpakov naked and acting strangely. After Annabelle took him back to her apartment, he shot and killed her. He claims he had a psychotic break induced by the mushrooms. Ever since that night, Sharon Annable has worked to honor her daughter's memory. She was very artistic, and she had a true gift of healing, which is one of the things that makes me most sad is that she's no longer able to share that gift. The legalization initiative made Annable immediately angry and concerned. I want Colorado
3: voters to know and understand, although some people may claim that they experience benefits from this, this is not a magic cure
6: or a magic pill, so to speak, for certain mental health illnesses. She hopes that Coloradans will vote no on the initiative. When organizer Veronica Lightning Horse-Perez heard her story, she expressed grief for her loss.
4: I am bound and determined to do everything within my power to make sure that people have enough education so that we can do everything possible to make sure something like this never happens again.
6: Perez says it's rare for psilocybin to lead to violence, and legalization intends to encourage more responsible use. Still, some law enforcement have concerns. Drug investigator Matthew Stoneberger says he encounters psilocybin less often than other drugs, but believes the initiative would expand the black market.
1: Loosening the restrictions on psychedelic drugs like psilocybin mushrooms will provide cover to people who want to profit and traffic.
6: But organizers point to Denver as evidence that legalization won't necessarily encourage more crime. Three years ago, the city made personal use of psilocybin the lowest law enforcement priority.
7: A lot of folks in our community, they felt more safe being able to use these medicines to try and heal.
6: That's advocate Kevin Matthews again. He participated in a panel with representatives from police and city government that found Denver's ordinance presented no significant public safety threat. Denver District Attorney Beth McCann says that from what her office has seen, The ordinance didn't dramatically change city crime.
2: One of my concerns when this was being considered was that Denver might become sort of the mushroom capital (laughs) of the country, or at least the state, and that does not seem to have happened.
6: Initiative proponents argue legalization would make psilocybin use safer by bringing it out of the shadows. But those assurances aren't enough for some Coloradans who feel the potential risks outweigh the benefits. From CPR News, I'm Max Lubers.
0: And you can read about the debate over legalizing psychedelic mushrooms at CPR.org in depth. When we come back, remembering a legend in Aspen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
6: Brandon Vargas was incredibly proud of his grandmother's green chile recipe. So he set out to recreate it for friends and family. Just one problem, she never wrote it down.
4: I mean, it's soft, it's luxurious, and then the spice settles on the back of your tongue, and it's a slow buildup.
6: Do not miss the Green Chile Recipe episode of CPR's new podcast, Kien Are We?, everywhere you listen and in the Colorado Public Radio app.
0: With Colorado Matters from CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. Aspen lost a legend this summer, although Bob Broadus never liked being called that. Pitkin County Sheriff for 24 years, the Boston native had a quick mind and a big heart. Months after his death at age 77, a recent public memorial drew hundreds. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg has the story.
2: It smells
3: like wine under the gently swaying aspen trees outside the Benedict music tent as a mostly older crowd waits for Bob Broaddus' remembrance to start. He dedicated his entire heart and love to this valley for so many years, and he he was just a lovely man.
5: Incredible human being and possibly the best law enforcement officer ever.
3: All of the rich and famous, and
2: all of us old-timers, we all loved him.
3: That's Polly Hayes, and before her, Broadus's friend, painter Paul Pascarella, and Terry Swart. And the day before, I was able to talk to some of the people who knew Broadus best, including current Pitkin County Sheriff Joe DeSalvo.
7: First of all, his size was imposing.
3: Six and a half feet tall, with long hair and a gap-toothed smile. But DeSalvo says Broadus' brain was his defining feature.
7: It's what made Bob, Bob.
3: When dealing with an issue as sheriff, he would often reference a Latin quote or historical event. And he could recall people's names like no one's business.
7: It was fantastic, even until he died. And, and he would say, I'm losing it. And I'm like, oh, and you just remembered a guy's name you met once 10 years ago. You're not losing it.
3: DeSalvo met Broadus in the mid 1980s, some time before Broadus became sheriff, and they would eventually spend hours each day together, DeSalvo constantly learning from him, even after he retired in 2010. DeSalvo, sheriff for the last 12 years, says Broadus taught him to never make decisions alone, to be firm but never insulting, and to always be truthful with the public.
7: Your integrity, your honesty, and your transparency is all you have.
3: Another part of Broaddus' legacy was doing things differently than other law enforcement agencies. DeSalvo remembers a time in the mid-90s when an armed man barricaded himself in his home for a week. Instead of going in guns blazing, Broaddus chose to wait the guy out.
7: And it was a very peaceful conclusion. And that's kind of the way he approached everything. What's the most peaceful, nonviolent way to solve this problem
3: well-known defense lawyer jerry goldstein describes broadest this way
2: one of the gentlest and one of the most effective and enlightened law enforcement officers in the country
3: and that caught the attention of many including a lot of famous people Broadus was friends with lyle lovett lance armstrong and hunter s thompson whom goldstein represented but around aspen Broadis was also a celebrity
2: If you were with him walking down the street, you couldn't pass a corner without having five or six people stop him uh, to thank him for what a wonderful job he had done for them or their kids.
3: Some people thought Broadus was too laissez-faire, but mostly he was beloved.
2: I've often said this, he was my best friend, but he was everybody's best friend. Um.
3: A huge crowd of those best friends come to his memorial, where his urn stands tall on stage, painted with gold cannabis sleeves. A small group of confidants tell of Broadus's empathy, how he raised two girls on his own, and how when applying for the sheriff's department, he admitted, on a lie detector test, to having smoked hashish about 10,000 times. One of the speakers ends his speech with the words, Be like Bob. I only met Broaddus once, in 2019, long after he'd started having health trouble. He told me his doctor recommended he move out of Aspen and to a lower elevation. But he wasn't budging.
1: Where else am I going to go with a coterie of friends that I've made over 50 years here?
3: So he stayed, even though that meant being on oxygen.
1: I realized I came here for the skiing. But I stayed here because of the magic of the people.
3: When he died in this one-bedroom apartment in June, he owned almost nothing. But current Sheriff Joe Salvo insists he was rich. As broadest like to tell him, friends are my currency. In Aspen, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News.
0: Stina is our Western Slope reporter based here in Grand Junction, and she'll soon have some company in this newsroom on Main Street, a Colorado Matters producer. I spoke with Kevin Dale, our executive editor, about the continued growth here at CPR News.
5: The issues in rural Colorado on the Western Slope are complicated, and Stina, as great as she is, can't. Tell all of those stories. Try as you might. Yes. So, from my perspective, to have a member of the CM team in Grand Junction who can roam the West and look for those stories allows us to do two things. It'll, it facilitates the in depth discussions that you have every day on the show, um, and it also lets us get more daily news either on our website. Or in our newscasts.
0: So this person will be both a producer and a reporter. You envision?
5: Yeah, I mean, most of your producers, as you know, do that on a daily That's basis right. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so they're very generous about contributing across the newsroom. Um, and this one, we're baking it in a little more to the to the job description. Um, hopefully, we'll post the position soon in the next uh, few weeks. But yeah, we we think this is a great way to again just get in into in depth topics.
0: Uh, Where is the money coming from for this?
5: So we we got a very generous grant, three-year grant, to do this. Oh, three years. Three years, um, which is what we look for because what we don't want to do at CPR is to start a position and then get rid of it when the funding runs out. We do this so that we can bake it into our budget, and that gives us the runway to do that. And Mm. it's it's what's fueled the growth in our newsroom, um, which you know has been dramatic and exciting.
0: This is a funder we can't name, I'm guessing. That's true. Okay. (laughs) But the idea is that after three years, it'll be absorbed into CPR's budget and will continue. Meanwhile, growth in so many other aspects of the newsroom as well. Uh, What are just a few of the most recent positions added?
5: Yeah. So recently we've added a justice reporter, a second justice reporter, We've added uh, a reporter who's focused on race and equity. We're filling positions as a big newsroom. We often have openings with turnover, and we're filling those positions. So, you know, not as many new positions this year as as we have in the past, but still growth.
0: It's also nice to have the opportunity to take all of those you have hired and be able to focus on integrating them into the newsroom. That's right. With that's, the that's exactly <laughs> right.
5: We've more than doubled the size of the newsroom in the past four and a half years, so... That's a great story, and it's a great testament to the support that we get from the community.
0: I'm excited to have a producer and reporter for Colorado Matters in Grand Junction. Thanks, Kevin. You're welcome. Kevin Dale is executive editor of listener-supported CPR News. Finally today, since forming in 2018... Peach Street Revival has grown their fan base at festivals and events across the Western Slope. The four-piece band from Grand Junction brings to mind the classic rock sound of artists Led Zeppelin, Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane, but with their own take on psychedelic blues. We will leave you today with their song Rally Roll. Roll. The band is Grand Junction's own Peach Street Revival. Catch them this weekend in Palisade and Grand Junction, including at the Colorado West Pride Fest. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to the Colorado Matters team.
1: Tyler Bender. Carl Bulick, Anthony Cotton.
5: Pete Kramer.
2: Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher.
5: Matt Herbs. Michael Hughes.
2: Carla Jimenez.
0: Pedro Lumbrano. Lumbra. Lumbra.
2: Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Woodfield.
0: And I'm Ryan Warner in Grand Junction, with special thanks to Nancy Lawholm and Ron Zastro. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.